podcasters note, this episode of Where to Begin with Jallo features heavy spoilers of the movie The House with Laughing Windows from 1976. If you've never seen the movie before, or are looking forward to participating in this series by sending a review in, please pause the show and check out the movie first. However, if you've seen it before, you can continue and listen on. Don't say you weren't warned. quella sgualderina mentre crepava ma se io sono ancora vivo e Coppola è vivo Dio buono perché a Coppola non devo mettere il culo nessuno hai capito? ho molta paura sai anch'io ma per me è diverso io quando voglio posso andarmene di qua Welcome back to another episode of Where to Begin With in Season 1, looking at the subgenre known as the Jallo. Our modus operandi in this season is to give you a footing in the subgenre known as the Jallo by picking some titles that I think are a natural and logical progression to round out your knowledge and hopefully give you inspiration and... Um, a bit of motivation to continue on your exploration of this strange little subgenre which is now very much in vogue. Now we are just as it stands now crossing that that illustrious halfway mark and now on the back slide down to the end of the season. It will finish in December so we're a few months out and I've picked some very recognisable names 
in the back collection, but also I like to think throwing a few curveballs still at you. On this episode, we're looking at Pupi Avati's The House with the Laughing Windows from 1976. Now, this one is a much lesser known Jallo outing, and it's kind of easy to see why it doesn't necessarily have all the flair or the pomp and circumstance of other Jallo films. It doesn't have much of the trend setting or jet setting that you would see in a lot of the numbers we've already covered. And at its very core, it features a little church-based conspiracy, which, believe it or not, in the 70s in Italy was slightly frowned upon. So we're going to get into some details about this movie for sure and catch you up. But before we get to that, can I just thank you, everyone out there, for the positive feedback on the back of our previous episode, which looked at the Pajama Girl case. We have some listener reviews, which will be coming up at the end of this episode. Now, as pertains to the House with the Laughing Windows, it is, I believe, readily available in the USA, not so much in the UK. Shameless put out a DVD of it a while ago. I believe it is now out of print. You can still pick it up relatively cheap, but if you don't have that cash readily available and still want to throw out some money and support the cause, uh, Chile, the TV kind of streaming station, um, currently has it up for two forty nine in standard definition because it's a DVD rip after all. And if you sign up with them, you get 50% off, which is how I watched the movie. It cost me like £1.50. Uh, or you can buy it outright for like £2 odds. So very little money to watch it. However, if you are like, ah, I don't know about this, Duncan. I don't know if I want to be shelling it my hard in cash. There is a pretty amazing stream of it on YouTube uh, with various different subtitles to choose from. So if you wanted to go down that road, it is available. You can go and check it out on YouTube and the guilt will pang at you as it should for illegally going away and checking out a movie that you could have thrown a couple of pounds at and seen legally. But uh, who am I to judge? I'm no one to judge. So the reason I chose this movie is primarily because we've covered a lot of the mainstay Jallos. Maybe not the biggest, biggest names in the genre. We still kind of get to them. But we've covered, for the most part, a logical run of movies which have at their core a conspiracy or a mystery around some death and we follow that progression along and uh, there's usually someone there who has traveled from somewhere else and he's witnessed one of the crimes and he's dragged into the investigation of sorts and is trying to work out what the fuck is going on that's kind of the, the level of the jello right that's that's what we've all established now on top of that uh, there are so many other things, usually a bladed weapon, um, gloved killer who lurks in the shadow. We get a lot of POV, a lot of heavy breathing, bottles of J&B in the background. Uh, there's usually some sort of kinder trauma in the killer's past. All these things are kind of textbook Argento um, tick lists for, for filmmakers to do. And we've seen a lot of those in the examples. There's been some that have went slightly off-piste. Uh, you look at something like the Pajama Girl case... Definitely a Jallo, um, but is is less about that kind of gloved killer aspect and more about the mystery to find out who the killer was. Um, or even when we looked at The Lizard and the Woman's Skin, when we looked at that movie, uh, it was pretty much a kind of false narrative that we were following. And as a result, the mystery was around trying to unravel that false narrative. Uh, the unreliable narrator... Uh, causes quite a lot of issues and Spasmo it was even more kind of bizarre but at its core still had to feel the look the smell the taste of your typical Jallo and the house with the laughing windows though by 1976 the Jallo's on the decline it's on the downward slope that's not to say we've completely lost our taste for it the previous year Argento would set the world alight when he would return back to the fold with Deep Red and people would start losing their shit about how violent these movies could be all over again. And certainly we get more towards the end. Vulci's still churning some out. We have people like Umberto Lenzi, who is not scared of putting out a title or two. Uh, even Sergio Martino is making the transition 
towards kind of more police procedural stuff, but in saying that it's police procedural stuff still has a kind of, we need to track down a killer, there's a killer on the loose, so it's still kind of is Jallo adjacent, so to speak. Um, so this movie is much more the right back to basics, there is a killer, I have to try and work things out, let's see if we can do that. Um, I, in a lot of respects, evokes memories of an earlier Jallo called The Bloodstained Shadow, which if you've never seen, go check that one out. It is really, 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 really good. But there's also a little wink and a nod and a nudge to Don't Look Now, in that what we have in this movie is a man who is travelling to this small village to work on the restoration project in a local church on a mural, very much like Donald Sutherland's character in Don't Look Now. Um, when he arrives here, he starts receiving mysterious calls from a woman who tells him not to work on said Muriel, not to get involved with any sort of restoration work, and pretty much just to save himself, which is a warning that he does not heed. Um, a string of murders seem to happen in the background, and the Muriel itself seems to depict some sort of sacrifice by the church, um, at the hands of these two kind of maniacal nun-like convent sisters and uh, basically our kind of our, our traveller the guy that's doing all the restoration work gets sucked into this mystery uh, ultimately finding that every time he thinks he's making some headway he's not really and every time the Every time he thinks there's an opportunity to get out, the door is closed. And what makes this movie a bit more interesting is it shares a bit of kind of shared DNA with the kind of folk horror stuff that's happening across the water in the UK. I mean, in a lot of respects, a movie like The House of Laughing Windows actually owes a lot more to something akin to folk horror than it necessarily does purely to Jallo. Like I said earlier, it doesn't have the the relative tropes that you would expect from the Jally. We don't have those kind of out-and-out kind of switchblade razor killers. We don't have the gloves. We don't have a lot of the POV to the extent that you want from those sort of movies. Um, it doesn't have the kind of bitching up-tempo soundtrack although the score to this is excellent doesn't have any of those issues actually at its core it's about a kind of internal mystery within a town which is kept within the town in that there are more than one person aware of the problem and they're all kind of doing their best to cover it up so that leans definitely more towards the realms of a kind of folk horror things. Once again, not too far off the ideas kind of pivoted by The Wicker Man. In some respects, this movie is like a weird combination of what would happen if The Wicker Man and Don't Look Now were, you know, made by an Italian director who was also putting a flair of the giallo in them. And that's kind of when you lie in here. The cinematography is absolutely brilliant and the look of the movie as well. Uh, this would pair really well with Don't Torture a Duckling in that it's, you know, it's not the usual kind of, well, like I said before, jet-setting Milan or Florence or Rome that we're used to with some of these other movies. No one is a glamorous character, and to be honest, there is no kind of Hollywood hotties in here either. Like Everyone is a bit more plain. Um, even our, even our kind of restoration guy who... Uh, sleeps with it, and it, I'm not saying it is a prostitute, but it has a kind of prostitute feel, um, is a much older, kind of less, I don't want to say less attractive, but maybe less appealing to the eyes uh, woman than you would expect. If this had been done three years earlier and been done by Sergio Martino, this would have been a lot younger woman and she would have been, like, fit in all the right places, if you know what I mean. And the camera would have glorified a lot more of that. You don't necessarily get that here. That's not to say that there isn't nudity. There is, but just maybe not on the leery levels that we've expected in previous movies. The reason I picked this movie is that there are a few giallos that I think have an ending which is kind of fucking amazing. Just like an absolute banger of an ending. And The House of Laughing Windows does have that. The ending to this movie is nothing short of exquisite. 
in that you think you see it coming and then they give you a false ending but ultimately the ending you get at the very end is much more depraved, much more sinister and it kind of ends in a kind of bitching, you know, electric guitar solo sort of way. Um, It reminds me of the movie we will be discussing next time uh, and we'll get into that conversation towards the end specifically where I'm going to throw a, a detailed spoiler warning for our discussion of the end because this is a movie that really the ending does does merit the journey. Now it's not a flawless movie. This movie at its core is a bit longer than some of the other Jallos. It's about an hour and 43, an hour and 44 um, and does meander a little bit in the middle. Not in a, a, a kind of not in a way that as the audience you will feel like you've been cheated for. Uh, it just it has a pace and it sticks to that pace and it doesn't really deviate from it. It doesn't feel the need to rush any sorts of kills. In fact, the body count in this movie is actually relatively low, Jallo speaking. And uh, even then, a lot of the dialogue is more covering mundanity than it is actually necessarily accelerating or adding huge swaths of exposition. It's not that sort of movie. This is a movie by a director who primarily didn't do horror movies. It was more um, known for slightly dabbling, if if any. He, he did a, a ton of other stuff, as a lot of Italian directors would during the time. Um, so yes, I get the feeling that he, he brings a bit more clout to the storytelling and less of the cheap gags that you would get from other directors who were more genre-based at the time. Like I said before, there's some really, really cool elements in here that are, are, are worth spending a bit of time and minding into for sure. Um, first and foremost, the performances are kind of great. Uh, Lino Coppolcino, uh, which I'm fairly sure is not how you pronounce his name, but it's a long name and it's in Italian, which means I will struggle. Uh, it's kind of great as our kind of hapless sort of protagonist stumbling through a mystery that you could never possibly understand uh, and never possibly even remotely get his head round. He, yeah, he struggles all the way through this movie. Uh, but he's surrounded by other great performances by Francesca Marciano um, or even uh, Vanna Bussoni uh, and Andrea Mazziusi. There, there's tons of great performances in here. None of them stellar to the point where they're like, this is incredible. They're just all baseline good performances, which once again in the realms of the giallo, specifically in this time period, you're lucky if you're getting a couple of powerhouse performances. Most of them feel run in the mill and tired. Um, you have like a great story here um, from the screenplay originally by Pepe Avati and I believe his brother Antonio Avati, who really bring together a, it's a great mystery and the ending feels fairly unique there. I mean, there is like Don't Look Now is a great comparison and I'm going to lean back into it quite a lot because there is that feel with the movie once again it would pair really well with Don't Look Now if you want to go with something a bit more rustic and then something a bit more avant-garde the cinematory, uh, cinematography not cinematony cinematography by Pascal Rashini um, is beautiful uh, this is once again thinking about the, the ideas of kind of folk horror this is a cinematography that really captures the landscape and understands that that is an important element in progressing the story here the isolation of the village that he's in um, and the events that that will unfold uh, you know are all part and parcel of the way the cinematography is set up and the last thing is Amidio Tomasi's uh, score is brilliant it fits it's not the kind of this one actually has a score which is more reminiscent of some of the scores that you get from Fabio Frizzi in the early 80s working on the Gates of Hell trilogy than you do in the 80s there's something a bit more kind of creepy spooky in the way that he brings it together and it works um, very 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 well it just adds an additional element here because there's a whole section of this movie of could this be supernatural or is it grounded re- in reality and when we eventually get the the reveal it works very much to its credit now The House of Laughing Windows is a movie that is relatively well received it, it did well in terms of its, its score and still scores incredibly high I think it's one of those ones because it's different 
than the the kind of well-trodden path and at the same time delivers a a story unique with an ending which uh, if you ask me to name my top five endings in Jalla movie uh, House of Laughing Windows is definitely in there it could not be because it's that fucking strong so it it has that you know it has a great a great um, a great sense of its own identity and I think that you know like puts it in its favour but it's also what makes it stand out to critics now I'm going to let you know for the next minute I'm going to spoil the ending so jump ahead if you have never seen this movie or did not heed the warning at the start hopefully you've jumped away the reveal at the end of this movie is the the, the, the kind of the sisters of which legends speak of are actually still around and they are the landlady uh, of the hotel that our main protagonist is staying in, but also the local priest who is a woman in drag, is dressed like a man. And that reveal right at the very end is so fucking creepy and so terrifying and so well done and so ex- so well executed that ultimately he finds out that Tim's in on it. Um, he's been played for a fool, very, very Edward Woodward and Wicker Man. And, and he very... <laughs> unlikely ending in a giallo our main protagonist is, is essentially committed to death <laughs> um, which doesn't usually happen the giallos believe pretty much and we catch our killer and roll the credits and it's you know happy happy go let's move on to the next movie um, As Will Laughing Windows doesn't give you that so it is worth checking out and it's also while I'll mention why it's linked into the other movie that I've picked for the next time so yeah, I think it's a great movie. I think if you've never seen it before, this is definitely one that will feel different, but has at its core something that feels a bit more refreshing. This far in to the series, you know, we're on episode six. We'll have four movies after this. Um, we need to keep things fresh. And the, the kind of last four movies, there's a couple of heavy hitters in there and a couple of lesser known Jallo as well, or Jally, which I think we need to get in order to round out how we feel about things. And this movie, twinned with the movie we'll cover in a month's time, is certainly on the slightly more obscure, but definitely, definitely worth your time. So there we go. That is The House with Laughing Windows. I do think it's great. I hope you check it out. Like I said before, you can jump across. It's available on YouTube in its entirety. If you're in the UK, uh, Chili, the streaming channel, if you're signing up for it, you get the title for like £1.50 to stream. Uh, and if you're in the States, it does have a physical release over there. It does have a physical release in the UK. Shameless is put out as well if you're wanting to go and check it. So that's your review of the house with laughing windows but let's turn our attention to your thoughts on the movie we covered last month it was of course the pajama girl case we have two audio reviews that have come in for your listening pleasure the first one from our very good friend Kate Pollock who has submitted what she classes as a very long a needlessly long review I think is maybe in line with the words that she said, but having listened to it, I think she forms all her points out as well, and like I've said before, Kate, start a podcast, and you clearly have no shortage of things to say, very much like myself, podcast is the way for you. Kate said... Hi everyone, hi Duncan, it's Kate Pollock here. Um, I'm doing an audio review this time. Um, I thought I would... Um, do it because I, I had fun doing it for another of the teapot shows um, and I thought I'd save Duncan um, the effort of having to read out my essays. Um, so this is my review of the uh, Pajama Girl case. This was my first watch. Um, never even heard of it before so that was really cool going in kind of blind on that one. Um, basic summary is we have two stories um, sort of running alongside each other. We've got one uh, where there's a murder victim, as She's been so burnt that the police are having real trouble identifying her. So we have a bit of a murder mystery kind of going on with that. Um, And then on the other side, we have um, this woman called Glenda. Um, She... Uh, she basically is leading this very sad and unfulfilling life um, where she has sort of multiple sexual partners um, ultimately marries one but ends up in this abusive relationship where a sort of series of devastating events occur Um, about to spoil this I'm going to be spoiling this one so heads up Um, 
But what we later sort of find out with these two stories, how they connect is actually that they're not following the same timeline. And our main female character, Glenda, um, she is in fact the murder victim that the police are trying to identify. And what we're witnessing um, with her story is just the events that lead up to her murder. Um, so I'm going to sort of start with the police detective side of things. Um, there, there's a real kind of heavy kind of police procedural thing. I am a fan of, of murder mysteries and crime mysteries. I grew up on stuff like Midsummer Murders, Jonathan Creek, um, Poirot, Murder, She Wrote, all that kind of stuff. So I, I love that kind of thing. And that sort of lasted up into adulthood with things like Dexter and, bones and things so um this really appealed to me this side of things um there seems to be this kind of you know new versus old when it comes to police methods of detecting um we've got this copper um called ramsey he's uh, him and morris are leads on the case and they um are very much into sort of what at the time would have been very, very new um, policing in in profiling and psychology and things. And then you have this old retired kind of, you know, long in the tooth detective called Timpson. And he's very much sort of like foot pounding kind of detective, uh, not street pounding kind of detective, sorry, Um, you know, following the evidence, you know, talking to witnesses and all this kind of stuff. Um, And it seems that the film kind of leans more into that side of things, um, because although... um, you know, he sort of breaks the rules, he kind of takes evidence, things like that. Um, his methods do tend to be more effective, they they tend to be correct, whereas Ramsey's, he makes a lot of assumptions, um, he ultimately ends up accusing the wrong man, and he also is... is quite dictated by the bureaucracy of the department i think it's the governor that he's kind of he's got an election coming up and he's pushing for this case to be solved before then um and and ramsey is only too happy to kind of go along with that which is obviously is not cool um so so yeah so it's very interesting watching these two characters have this kind of you know conflicting dynamics i personally I love the character of Timpson. He just, again, he reminds me of these kind of characters we've seen before in in, in crime TV and, and films and stuff. This kind of guy has been dragged out of retirement to help out and he's initially reluctant, but then, you know, he, he's, he ends up being a bit like a dog with a bone and he gets all into it. Um, he doesn't care about the rules. He doesn't care about conformity. And although it's not something I condone in real life, actual kind of police work, it's very interesting and fun to watch on screen. There's a bit where he tells the chief he can shove his praise up his ass because he's got the wrong guy and all of this. And for him, it's just, it's not about the personal gain it's about his satisfaction of solving the case which is something I really can get behind so I really enjoyed that kind of that side of the movie moving on to Glenda's side um this is such a tragic story um she's a very young woman she is beautiful she is absolutely stunning but unfortunately that kind of comes with its downfalls and it seems that the people in her life only really see her for what she looks like they only really see her as a sex object even when Antonio one of her lovers sort of says marry me she says that it's only because they're both lonely um, and he sort of seems to kind of pine for her but in this kind of idealistic way rather than really knowing who she is Um, and then her one of her lovers is an older professor and he's quite dismissive of her and then the other guy is well Roy, he is just, he is just a horrible person. Um, and he's actually, funnily enough, friends with Antonio, but Antonio doesn't know that he's sleeping with, with Glenda. Um, so you could argue that this film kind of has a thing against women uh, and being it's sort of, you know, um, jalo nature, there's definite kind of support there for that um, argument. However, I would say it's not it doesn't go after the quote-unquote promiscuous women in the way that like slashes and things normally do she's she's being punished but we really feel for her we feel this sympathy we see that she is just very sad and lonely and she's just wanting to feel connected and wanting to feel wanted um and she's just to quote Donnie Darko she's looking for love in all the wrong places you know um and I think if if the film really wanted to go after her in in that kind of hateful way that spiteful way we wouldn't feel those things um when we sort of see her kind of descend into this sort of despair 
it's tragic to watch. Um, it's horrible to watch. Um, and yeah, ultimately she does pay an awful price for her promiscuity. Um, and, you know, it's just as she's trying to turn her life around, she's left her husband, she wants to do better and, and she's ultimately killed for, for it. But at the flip side, you have Timpson who is really fighting for her. Um, and although we don't understand that those two things are related at first, um, I think it's a testament. He could so so easily be more like Ramsay and just dismiss evidence at our hands and things, but he doesn't. Um, and as well as providing a really great mystery to follow, like I mentioned before, it just shows us that Glenda's story deserves to be heard and she deserves justice. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think this film is actually in a way, you know, quite progressive because it'd be so easy to hate Glenda you know she cheats on her husband and she sleeps with loads of men oh no but but we don't and I think that's just very interesting it's not something I really don't think you see too often either um and you know and she's very very kind of uh, I don't say relatable maybe but as I say, we can certainly empathise um, in the way that she just has this sort of real self-loathing. There's lots of references to her being akin to prostitutes and and um, and being a, a whore and all the rest of it. And and I think that that's not really fair. Um, but she certainly sees it as fair. There's this bit where she says that Antonio is saying all these awful things about her and they're all true. We don't know what he said, but I can't imagine that it's all true, honestly. Um and it ultimately, it all kind of, this self-loathing all kind of accumulates when she ends up literally selling her, her body to these two strangers in the bar. Like she needs money. She's left her husband. She needs money. But, you know, she has literally become the thing that, you know, people have been telling her whole life that she is in one way or form. Um, and she just is, it's not this kind of, this really reluctant thing that she, oh, I have to do this and all. Oh, no, she's just very kind of, She's very sad, you know, you can see that she's crying and all of this, but she's just resigned herself to this, really. Um, and that in itself, I think, is even more tragic, um, that she's just sort of, you know, accepts that this is, this is, yeah, this is it, really. Um, but what makes the scene even worse, despite the fact that they don't care that she's just lying there and she's not, she's crying and all this, is that oh, there's this 14-year-old there, it's one of the guy's nephews, and these guys are just horrible. They're, they're, oh, they're seedy. They're patronising. They're typically unattractive. They're sweaty and ugh. And they're like huffing and puffing on top of her. And all the while she's making eye contact with this 14-year-old who's so bewildered and so, like, has no idea. Like, it's like, what is going on here? This is awful. And he's very disturbed by what's happening. And it just, it really just emphasised just how awful it is. Um, so yeah, and it's a very effective scene, even though it's very difficult to kind of watch, um, just because it is just, oh, you're just kind of, oh, love, oh, love, what are you doing? That, that kind of thing. And it's just, yeah, again, you just very much feel for her. Um, the men on note of these two guys, the men are just awful. They really are, um, you know, specifically Roy, um, as I said, is one of her lovers, is her husband's friend. He is just this kind of ball of, of rage and misogynistic kind of attitude. And, you know, he, he, he compares women to dogs and he says that you need to beat them to keep them in line. It's just, oh. And he then he uses his best friend, his Antonio, who's, who is also awful, um, you know, in his own right, but he he's also kind of a weak character and Roy very much takes advantage of that and he pushes him to to beat his wife and and ultimately you know be a part of her murder I mean Roy does the actual murder in the end um but you know he would have quite happily let his mate do it um and and sort of you know appease his own fury through Antonio and the actions that he forces Antonio to take um he's just one of the most reprehensible characters I've come across in a long, long while. Like, he is just disgusting. And he has this real entitlement towards Glenda, which is just awful. Um, but it's a very good character in the respect that it's done very well. You know, you are supposed to hate him, I think. Um, and it's just a, um, a testament to the guy playing him, um, you know, how well he does that role. And I think everyone in this film just does their roles so so well the acting is is more understated i think than most jello i've seen um there's not really over the top dramatics it's very kind of um you know grounded in their they're very grounded in their performances but i think considering the subject matter the fact that this is based on true events because it is it's based on true events that happened in australia um 
I think that's right. I think it's right that it's sort of played straight like that. Um, on other notes, the music is great. Um, it's got this kind of... Which really reminds me of like 70s and 80s cop shows, which is obviously very relevant. Um, but you have that kind of upbeat kind of score going throughout the sex scene that I just mentioned, um, which is really juxtaposing, but I think it's very effective in emphasising Glenda's despair. So although it's a bit like, oh, you know, not it's not the kind of score you would have for those kind of things, I think it works really well. The cinematography is gorgeous. It's it's set in Australia and we have these lovely landscapes, cityscapes. Um, it's quite different to, again, normal Jello, but I think it's, it's still, still really lovely to look at. Um, there's this really kind of there's these moments where um a lot of the time we see glenda through a mirror like a, a mirror perspective like you know her reflection um i think that's really cool it's quite a different way of doing it but also it just re represents the fact that you know people just sort of see her for her looks and and not much more than that um she's just a bit of a sex object and that's it um there's a couple of scenes where we focus on a kite um and it just sort of, the kite reminds me of Glenda. She's wanting to fly free, but she's tethered by the circumstances and situations that she's in. Um, there's a bit where she's find out she's pregnant. She's debating whether she should keep it. She wants to keep it. But Antonia, at this point, the story has left her. Um, he comes back, but he's left her at this point. And she's like, the baby needs a father figure. So again, her, her decisions is just frequently dictated by men. The effects are really great. There's not a lot of gore, but you have this really effective sort of burning on on the murder victim the lips peeling away the eyes are popping out um so yeah so although there's not really a lot of gore aside from this it's really really cool um and there's this really great scene where they have the body on display and you just it's a montage it, they're trying to it's a, a way of a method of trying to, and this has actually happened in real life as well as a method of trying to find her identity seeing if anyone will come forward and there's just this montage of all these people and all their different reactions to seeing this mutilated body um and i just think it's, it's a really cool scene um so yeah i've kind of touched on this but arguments about whether this is giallo i can definitely see why people would argue that it's not um it doesn't hold a lot of the typical rules as say there's not a lot of lot of bright red blood spatter everywhere there's no black glove serial killer um you know it's set in australia it's not in italy the performances are more grounded generally it's less sensational there's a lot of nudity and things but that's kind of it um but i would say though that there is a real kind of undeniable air of jello about it you know you've got beautiful women being killed it's a really great murder mystery um you know it's there's not a lot of tantalizing sex there's that one horrible sex scene and that's about it but there is a lot of nudity um there's a bit of lesbianism implied at one point um and although our main detective timpson um although yeah he's he is a detective he's an he's a retired detective he's still he's still kind of coming in um to the to help the police um he's re he's retired he's a volunteer so you could kind of argue he plays that role of things that you would see maybe in in films like God, uh, bird with crystal plumage or, or tenebrae where you have an outsider coming in to help the police that seemingly can't do it on their own which does seem to be the case here um also what i quite like is the fact that although it's very much a coincidence because the real life murder victim was murdered in yellow pajamas it's kind of cool that you have that color imagery there with it being a jello um i just thought that was quite a nice little coincidence um but yeah overall i i really really like this one i thought the twist was fantastic um i didn't see it coming like at all um my mind was blown when i found out and i, I just as i say i was just a little I was just yeah it really got me and before that I was a little bit unsure about where things were going and how these stories tied into each other but once that was reveal occurred I was like oh yeah I am in in like Flynn for this journey and see how it all plays out um I've watched it twice now um so that was my kind of initial take the second time watching it it was so interesting to see how all these pieces kind of went together fit together um and it definitely doesn't lose anything on on a repeat viewing and honestly I don't think uh, th this is something I think I will watch again and I could watch plenty of times again I mean not not loads because it it is a bleak bleak movie but it's definitely worth watching again and i would recommend it to so many people um so yeah so on that note um i i i, I think 
I'm holding back from giving it a five. I want to give it a 4.5. I think just because my initial kind of view on it was a little, I was a little bit unsure at first. But I think with with future watches, this could definitely solidify as a, as a strong five. Um, but 4.5 for me right now, but I will definitely go back to this one. And I just want to thank Duncan for bringing this to my attention. I could have, I would have probably gone my entire life without ever having watching this movie. So thanks very much because I am so glad that I did. Uh, so yeah, so that's my review. And um, as always, can't wait to hear other, what other people are saying um, and, um, you know, their thoughts on whether it's a jello or not. And, and yeah, it's going to be fun. Thanks very much, everyone. Keep safe. Keep saying <laughs> bye. Huge thanks to Kate Pollock for sending in that review. That's what you call a review, ladies and gents. I really enjoyed that. Um, and, and it's always great to hear that one of the suggestions or one of the picks, if it's through Movie Club on Podcasts Under the Stairs or specifically on Where to Begin with Jal, which is definitely more kind of micromanaged and focused on a particular journey. If those movies start, you know, hitting the mark with you and are movies that you want to check out more than once or go back to or really find that at the end of it have connected with you in a way that you didn't think they would then, my work here is done. That is purely what this show is aiming to do. We've got another review coming in. Our second and final review is, of course, from David Garrett Jr., who's been with us all the way through this season thus far. David said, Hello, Duncan and T-Puts Collective listeners. David Garrett Jr., back again here for Where to Begin with Giallo. Now, for this month, uh, the Pajama Girl case is one that I don't think I had ever heard of, Duncan, until you had featured on the one episode of the podcast under the series. I believe you had did four of the kind of think the lesser known giallo films that i had never really heard of on there and so i know i added it to my list of things to see and i could be wrong and i do apologize but i think you might have also featured some of the music as well on one of the mixtape episodes and so of course i've never actually seen this one until now i did find it interesting to learn that this is actually based on an unsolved murder that is in australia that shares the name of the Jamma Girl case. It's kind of a cool little thing that they're playing with here and taking whatever evidence they were able to find there and then, you know, making a fictional account of this. But what really struck me about this movie is that it has an interesting take where we have two stories running concurrently and then they end up tying up in the end. And I was curious as to how they were going to do that. Because on one side, we have the detectives of Thompson and Ramsey who are two different styles of how they investigate things. We have Thompson who's actually retired and is pulled out to help with this investigation on his own terms, where Ramsey is definitely new school, where he is so wrapped up in what he's learned in school that it has to be something with analysis and psychoanalysis. But I also think that he misses some of the major clues because of the tunnel vision that he has. I also find it quite interesting is that I feel like the co-writer and director of Flavio Mogherini is playing with some of the giallo tropes here that the more you watch in the subgenre, the more you're able to kind of pick out here. In that Ramsey is definitely convinced that it has to be a sexual deviant that did this murder, while Thompson is doing some old school police detective work where he is looking at the different evidence that he's been able to find and using that to try to piece everything together. And I think that it works pretty well, in my opinion. And I'm also kind of glad that we don't get necessarily the bumbling detectives, even though I guess you could consider Ramsey that because he's not actually looking at the evidence that is in front of him. But then we do get that a little bit of an information dump at the end. But I was so kind of taken off guard with what the reveal is that I'm actually okay with it because Thompson has come up with what happened pretty much halfway through this movie, but then he is murdered when he tries to go and talk to his, who he thinks actually did it. And it ends up getting him killed, which I think is kind of interesting that he thought that that was what was going to happen to him. Now, kind of going along with this, we have the other story that I haven't really kind of delved much into as of yet. With this is following a young woman of Glenda Blythe, who is the lovely Delilah de Lazaro. Now, what I think is interesting is that she has three different lovers that she is seeing concurrently. We have Professor Henry Douglas, who is Mel Fur, which... I saw his name in the credits, and it took me until the end of the movie. I kept trying to think of how I knew who he was, as I've seen him in quite a few things. And then she's also seeing Roy Connor, who is Howard Ross. And he is kind of a very volatile type guy who is working at 
a factory and then has moved into like the export import business and this will play in later in the movie and then you also have Antonio Antonellini who is Michele Placido now she ends up marrying him but we see she's very unhappy and I kind of find it interesting that we're getting to see a slice of her life over a kind of long period of time, but we're just jumping in at different segments of it. But the movie does a pretty good job at throwing us a swerve where Glenda goes over and hangs out with one of her friends by the name of, I believe the version that my movie had it on was that of Evelyn. And at first I'm thinking she is the woman that we found in the pajamas, but we end up learning that she's living in Los Angeles and sends a that pair of pajamas to Glenda. Because I think that's the interesting thing is that the reveal of this movie is that the dead woman that we see this whole time in the movie is actually Glenda and figuring out how she was murdered and why she was murdered, which I thought was a kind of cool thing. And then kind of playing a little bit back into what the police are trying to figure out is that the main suspect who I knew from the beginning was a red herring is that of Quint. And he is just a guy who's a little bit perverted, but he kind of just keeps to himself and is a little bit weird with living so close to the beach like he does. And something I kind of found interesting is that this is a little bit like a lizard and woman's skin in that we really only have the one death and it's trying to figure out everything that goes with that. So we don't really get a lot of the way of effects and this is probably one of my first ones that I've encountered that I can't necessarily consider a horror movie only because it is really just a police detective film which I kind of get what you're getting at with these movies Duncan in that we don't get a lot of effects, but I do think the cinematography and the editing is really kind of the strong pieces for this movie. And really the last thing I kind of wanted to go over would be the soundtrack, is I love the theme song, Sun by Amanda Lear. I'm not a big fan of the other song, but the theme for this movie, though, is really on point, and I'm actually probably going to seek it out so I can have it on a playlist just because I dug it that much. The rest of the score I thought just fit for the era. It's not really going to be one that's my favorite, but I mean, it worked for what they were needed. So... With that said, this is another Giallo that I had never seen before, so I'm kind of glad that you put it on this so I could definitely give it a viewing. Probably not one of my favorites, but I do think it's an above average one for all the reasons that I said, and definitely kind of an interesting one and has not really fallen in line with a lot of them that I have seen previously. So my rating here would be probably on the low end of a 4 out of 5 on the T-Put scale. I'm pretty excited that the next movie is The House with Laughing Windows, as it's been one that has been on my list for some time to check out. Just haven't got around to it yet. Can't wait to hear the episode as always, Duncan. This is David Garrett Jr. signing off. And a big thanks to David Garrett Jr. for sending in his review of this movie. Always great to hear from you as well, my friend. Uh, go across and check out the work that he's doing with Journey of a Cinephile. It's a great podcast. and He's uh, doing God's work over there with his reviews that he's working his way through. Now, we are, like I said, four movies away from completing this season and what a season it has been, uh, which allows me the opportunity on the back four really to be quite selfish. And this one also is a movie that has one of those great classic kind of giallo endings. Now, very much like uh, the Pajama Girl case. This is a movie that brings a degree of controversy as to whether or not it's actually a giallo. To me, it totally is. 100% is committed there. Some people less so because it may be pleased with a narrative structure which doesn't make it fully acclimated to the world of the giallo. If you don't think it is, that is cool. To me, it definitely is. This is The Short Night of Glass Dolls from 1971, directed by the great Aldo Lado. Now, a couple of things to take into account when we are doing this movie um, and the, the journey we'll be carrying through is this is Aldo Lado's directorial debut and dear God, does this guy come out swinging. It is actually intimidating how good this movie actually is. Um, points on Aldo Lado that we'll touch on during a review is that he kind of starts off as a screenwriter, moves into directing, is from the same kind of world as your, your Argentos and stuff, and that he kind of grows up in the industry. So... You know, it's you know you just you just follow it through. Uh, it features a bitchin' score by Ennio Morricone, and is kind of co-written by 
Aldo Lado himself, but Ernesto Gastaldi, who's a name that is almost synonymous with the genre. So when you add all those things in as a pedigree together, it's where I lean more towards Giallo than than just the thriller that a lot of people say it is. And that's what we'll be doing in a couple of weeks' time. Now, I'm fully aware that we are running behind schedule with these um, these reviews at the moment. I'm kind of hoping things will even themselves out, but in order to allow you guys to get the, the chance to sit down and actually watch the movie and send your reviews in in time, we are going to give this one two and a half weeks uh, for you guys to get your reviews in for The House With Laughing Windows and my review of Short Night of Glass Dolls will accompany, obviously, that episode as it always does. So a sensible date would be, I would say, well, Sunday the 20th of September. It gives us a couple of weeks for you guys to get your reviews in for The House With Laughing Windows and on the episode, which will drop a couple of days after, um, on the 23rd of September, I will uh, go through your reviews on that episode as well as give you my review of The Short Night of Glass Dolls. Now, once again, just reiterating, Sunday the 20th of September, get your reviews in for that movie and we will continue our journey along. Thank you very much for checking out Where to Begin with Jallo. You have other shows you can check out on the Teapots Collective. We are closing out this week our series one of Opera Omnia looking at Ben Wheatley. So check that episode when it drops looking at the final Wheatley movie, uh, Happy New Year, Colin Burnstead. Uh, we have also got a brand new episode of Doing the Nasty dropping within the week. So check that one out as well. That one was a ton of fun to do. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to you guys hearing that. And within the next two and a half weeks, uh, we will be in the penultimate episode of season three of Chronicle. We'll be covering the Borderlands from 2013. A bit of folk horror filmed footage, which is very difficult to say if you've drank more than two whiskeys, which I tried to refrain from the night. And uh, that fell off pretty fucking fast. So thank you very much for checking out Where to Begin with Jallo. 20th of September is your deadline. The next episode drops 23rd of September, covering the short night of glass dolls. But until that episode drops, remember, remember, dear listeners, like in all great Jallo movies, anyone could be the killer. Even you.